0: Those of you who are visiting are (coughs) new. We're going through the book of Matthew and we're in the middle of the woes. It's a series of warnings that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, gives to the religious leaders at the time of Jesus. Three basic groups four maybe are mentioned throughout the Gospels, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and sometimes rabbis. this week, Jesus particularly is singling out the scribes and the Pharisees. But it's sufficient to know that they were the religious leaders of the Jews. And this was at a time when people didn't believe in the separation of church and state. And so the religious leaders were largely the political leaders also. And so if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 to 33. Matthew 23, beginning with verse 29. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we have been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the benefits of being a modern-day Pharisee is that we have technology, and so despite the fact that I have uh, an internal commitment not to blog on Sundays... I can use the blogging software to have a post put up on Sundays and I never have to touch it. You know, it's like the it's like the Jews in New York City that have worked out a way of having the elevators automatically stop at their place so that they don't have to do the work of touching the button of the elevators. And uh, so this morning, a blog post was put up. Of a man reciting two chapters from the book of Hebrews. He's memorized them and he just recites them. And if you get a chance today, go and listen to it. It was sent to me by David Wegner, uh, a pastor that had been staying in his home, had had turned him on to it. Anyhow, um, (coughs) if you have watched that already or if you've seen what I'm talking about, you know that uh, he uses great zeal, lots of inflection, lots of uh, emphasis, um, yelling at times, very quiet at other times, uh, gestures to interpret the text of Hebrews. And I have to admit, those two chapters of Hebrews came alive to me in a way they never had before, watching him. And I thought it's amazing how simply intonation and gestures can essentially be the translation of a text of Scripture. In other words, I have no question that he misleads us at certain points as he recites it. Because he's got the interpretation wrong. You know, because he's got the interpretation wrong. I mean, in other words, just inflection directs us as to the meaning of the words, right? Now, if I were to read again to you the text that I just read to you and were to read it in anything approximating the, the way Jesus said it, all of you would be completely blown away because you know that when Jesus said this to the scribes and Pharisees, he didn't say, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? How do you think he said it? Is anybody in drama here? Nobody. Okay, come here. (laughs) Now, this is difficult because essentially what he'll be doing is playing Jesus. And there's a reason why we tend to remove all inflection, right? Because we don't want to purport to be standing in Jesus' shoes. But go ahead and have a hack at it. Without thinking about it, do it as if this was an opera. Wait, wait, I've got to give you... Well, it's opera. You can project. (laughs) (laughs) Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, 30, and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of who murdered the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers! How will you escape the sentence of hell? Yeah, he did write, read the verse number, and I had to—I had to kind of—I'd <laughs> say pretty good until the last verse. You agree? Last verse was not any good. So have have try it again, just the last verse. How how do you think he did it? Yeah. That. The brood of vipers. Yeah. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Yeah, I think that that's right. Huh? Huh? Okay. <laughs> the point I want to make is that it's impossible to deliver these words without having some intonation, some inflection, some emphasis, some some gestures. Uh, You can't dispassionately say these things. In other words, this was probably, probably one of the most intense moments of confrontation that Jesus ever had. I have a hard time thinking of any that would be more intense than this. And I want us to look at this and then apply it to ourselves. But always, in order to apply it, we have to understand the context. At the time of Jesus, in the first century, it was a time of monuments. If you think of the 30 or 40 years after the Battle of Gettysburg... All the monuments that sprung up, every state, every county almost, every uh, part of the military outdid one another in, in erecting monuments. Have you ever been to Gettysburg? You've seen the monuments at Gettysburg? It's like every grassy knoll, every patch, every clearing. There are humongous monuments. And they go on and on and on and on and on. They're everywhere. You can't go through Gettysburg without seeing them in the city, out of the city, everywhere you go. There are monuments. Well, at the time of Christ, they were into monuments. And the Jewish historian from the time Josephus records that Herod himself had erected a new white marble monument over David's tomb. And so in Acts, we read when Peter's preaching, he says this. He says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so they cultivated the honoring of dead men. Now, the Jews had not fallen to the level of the Egyptians. You think of the pyramids. Unbelievable monuments, weren't they, to dead men. And yet they did honor dead men. And they were uh, very zealous in doing this. So it was a time of honoring the nation's heroes with monuments. Now, as I was preparing to preach, I began to think about monuments. And it was something that I had no problem thinking about because I had just, for the first time in my life, ordered a monument. Annie Lane, who died at the end of last year, doesn't yet have a monument and it's time to settle the estate. And so we need to get it done. And we had contacted the grave, uh, the cemetery a number of times, but they hadn't returned the call. So finally, I began to look for monuments and I didn't realize that I'm supposed to order. I'm supposed to look on the Internet for the word monument. So I was looking for tombstone and gravestone and all these other things. And finally, I realized monument. That's what you search for. So I called the uh, monument company in Gettysburg and they sent me out a brochure. And what you do is you look at the brochure and you order the number that you like. So I went to the brochure, four pages, probably 40 or 50 monuments in there. And you can choose your style. You can choose everything. Now, I didn't realize, Tim told me as I preached in the first service, I didn't realize that the monument and the writing are two different things. And so I looked at all these monuments, and there was only one I could even bear to look at. All of the rest of them had curly cues and frills and flowers, and they were all femi. You know, they all had like, I don't want to insult you women, but they all had like female lettering and female decorations. And it just didn't seem dignified to me. You know, just endless, like, I mean, like literally even the cross was like, you know, they made the cross into a pretty thing. And then over in the back page in the bottom right corner was a little monument that was stood about this tall, about that wide, about that deep, beveled edge, plain lettering. Now, Tim says I could have gotten that on any of the stones. Well, I didn't realize that. And so I was a little embarrassed because as I looked at everything, it it was apparent to me that that was the monument that would be cheapest. And so when I called the woman back, I thought, is she going to laugh at me? You know, is she going to say, well, if that's the one you're going to buy, why don't you go somewhere else with your business? I actually was worried about that. But she seemed to be very happy with me buying this very cheap and very plain monument. And so I'm buying a monument for Annie Lane. And it's in Gettysburg where there are all these monuments to dead what? To dead, what? Soldiers. So today, what kind of monuments do we erect? Well, think about it. We erect monuments to our relatives, right? And to military heroes, right? And statesmen, after all, there is the Lincoln, there is the the Washington Monument and there is the Lincoln Memorial, right? What other monuments do we erect today? Who are our heroes? Well, yeah, ourselves, but really our heroes are Men who make a living copying a posture as men. Actors. Actors who have muscles and are bad to the bone. Those are our heroes. Now, remember what I said last week. With the exception of Jack Nicholson, who's ugly enough that there's no risk involved, most of them would avoid a fist fight at all costs. Apparently Jack Nicholson, what he is on the film and what he is in person are the same. That's what I hear. <clears throat> and also, what's his face from Australia? What's the guy's name? No, not Gibson. Who? Yeah, Russell Crowe. Apparently he's the same in person. You know, he'll take you on. <clears throat> so think about this: our heroes are men. Who make a living acting as if they're men of courage, and integrity. Those are our heroes, and women who make a living appearing as if they're what? Fertile. I mean, isn't that what feminine beauty is—fertility? And and but but again, it's very important that they are not actually fertile, and that the men aren't actually virile, but that they're both sophisticated enough to know that there should be a disconnect between what they cop a posture as and what they really are. All right? Now, think about this. These are our heroes. You say, well, they're not my heroes. And I say, well, okay, two-thirds of Americans are evangelicals. Two-thirds of Americans claim to be Bible-believing Christians, right? They claim to have family devotions, or personal devotion read the Bible and pray. They have, you know... Membership in an evangelical church. They believe in the substitutionary atonement. They're Trinitarian. Right, right? Come on, right? I mean, there's a reason why Rick Warren is the one that will choose our president. Okay? Or help us choose it. And our heroes are actors and actresses. Right? Right? Now, some of you say, well, I'm not so superficial. I'd like there to be a connection between my heroes and what they purport to be. And so, your heroes are what? Well, you keep track of baseball statistics the Baseball Hall of Fame, the Football Hall of Fame, the Basketball Hall of Fame. So, your heroes are sports figures, right? And you know all the stats. You say, well, I'm not so superficial as to have actors and actresses. I'm not so superficial as to have uh, to have jocks. I, you know, I I have more sophisticated heroes. I'm more sophisticated, my choice of heroes. So some of you might actually have read a biography of uh, Stonewall Jackson or Robert Lee or who else? Well. Well. I'm not going to go into the 20th century. Um, (coughs) Here's my point. Gettysburg is military men. Washington is political statesmen. Uh, What's the name of the town that has the Baseball Hall of Fame? Cooperstown for baseball. And the Hollywood stars for actors and actresses. So who is setting up all these tombs and monuments to these people if it's not Christians doing it? Do you understand what I'm saying? It is Christians that are doing it. And then I grew up in a town called Wheaton. And in Wheaton, what you saw over the last 30 years is the building of a humongous monument. Unbelievable monument. On the south side of campus. It dwarfs the rest of the campus. Do you know what it's called? It's called the Billy Graham Center. And in the Billy Graham Center, there is a museum. You know what it's called? It's the Billy Graham Museum. And it's a museum to Billy Graham. You can't enter into the text today until you begin to see who your heroes are and who you erect monuments to. Does that make sense? And I want to just say this before we get deeper into the text. At least the scribes and the Pharisees had prophets and righteous men as their heroes. How could I not make the point? Think about that. Doesn't it tell us something about ourselves, who our heroes are? And if our heroes are people who cop a posture as something, what does that say about us? Huh? Jesus says in verse 29... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And so their heroes were the prophets and the righteous. In other words, they had the right heroes. The prophets were God's spokesmen who spoke his word to his people. They were righteous men like Deborah, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, and Stephen. And the righteous were those who lived to honor God and were known for refusing to join in the wickedness that surrounded them. Men like Abel, like Enoch, like Noah and Abram and Joseph, like Lot. They weren't necessarily the spokesmen for God, but they were leaders for God, known for their character and righteousness. Now, how were they treated? Or more to the point, how did they die? In Acts 7.52, we read, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And so we see what has always been the condition of those who are righteous and those who are prophets. And it is what? That they were all persecuted, that they were killed, that they were betrayed, and that they were murdered. This is the condition across human history of those who are prophets and those who are righteous. It says again, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is none. They were all persecuted. What does the Bible say? What did Jesus say? He said, beware when what? All men speak well of you. So apparently among the prophets and the righteous, there are two choices. One is to have everybody speak well of you, in which case you should beware, according to Jesus. And the other is that you will be persecuted, that your blood will be shed. And then you are what? A prophet and a righteous man. All right. And so we see that part of the reason the prophets and righteous men were honored was that they suffered and died because of their holiness and work. But did the scribes and Pharisees notice how the prophets and righteous men died? And did they think about it? Did they stop to consider that life on this earth follows patterns and that there were prophets and righteous men in their own day? No, they only had eyes for the past, not the present. And despite their studying history, they refused to take any lessons from it. And so here's what they said to each other and to the souls looking to them for the way of salvation. Verse 30, and say, Jesus says, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. It's very interesting that here they call the men that persecuted the righteous and the prophets, they call them what? They call them our what? Our fathers. Being the sons of the murderers of the prophets and righteous men, they could have stopped to consider whether it ran in the blood, whether it was genetic. It's likely the scribes and Pharisees really did believe their press releases. What their erecting of monuments really was, it was a massive and perpetual public relations drive, a massive advertising campaign that would long outlive them. They really believed they would not have killed the prophets had they been alive at the time, and they erected monuments to them. And yet, what were they planning now? Well, in Matthew 21, a few chapters before, verses 38 and 39 and 46, we read this. Jesus told a parable, and at the end of the parable, Jesus says to them, but when the vine growers saw the sun, They said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then verse 46, what was the response of the religious leaders? It says, when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. And so we see Jesus again and again and again confronting the religious leaders of his time and saying to them, you're going to kill me. And you're going to kill me because I speak truth and because I'm righteous. And you're going to kill me. And how do they respond? By trying to kill him. The prophets had faithfully given, or better, roared the warnings against the popular religion of their time that God had spoken to them and told them to give to the people. But the scribes and Pharisees were convinced the popular religion of their own time had finally gotten it right and was the true way of God. And this is our habit. Our habit is to think that we live in a time that is different from all other times, that this is the one time when it's profitable to be righteous. This is the one time when we honor prophets. We're the one church that really is holy I am the one pastor who is proper in honoring those who are living. And so we always perpetually look at the past and say, I've learned the lesson. And in the present, show that we haven't. That's our habit. It's very interesting that the prophet, excuse me, that the scribes and the Pharisees, as they looked, At Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And as they looked at Micah. What they would have said to themselves is. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And and you were right to give it to them back then. And in fact, today the same thing goes on. But I'm not participating in it. That's how they would have looked at it. Jesus Tells us what was really going on in verse 31. He says, so you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. What they said they were doing, what they actually were doing were two different things. According to Jesus, their very acts of honoring the prophets and righteous men were a testimony against themselves. How? Because it showed that they too, like their fathers, were really interested only in dead prophets and righteous men not living ones. They gave their attention to dead men's bones and monuments, not living ones. They honored prophets who couldn't speak God's convicting word and righteous men who couldn't live righteously anymore. And they even acknowledged that those who had killed the prophets and righteous men were their fathers when they used the word father. The monuments and tombs were a way for the scribes and Pharisees to make reparations for the wickedness of their fathers. I was thinking about slavery. And thinking that although there are so many bad things about affirmative action that I'm opposed to it, that there are good things about affirmative action. What are they? Well, the good thing is it is a way for whites to make reparations to blacks for our oppression. Right? It's true. And so here we see the scribes and Pharisees trying to make reparations for the wickedness of their fathers. And they think that they've left it behind. But have they? Jesus says no. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Now, when we hear this statement, fill up then the measure of the guilt, it should ring a bell with us. Let me read one similar statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result that what? That they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. They always fill up the measure of their sins. Do you remember in the Bible that it says it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, that God's kindness shows itself by giving us greater time to repent, that the delay of the second coming of Christ is a kindness? Do you remember what God said to Moses when he made his covenant or to Abram, when he made his covenant with Abram? You remember the ritual of the animals and everything? And then we read that God promised Abram that he would give to his descendants the land where Abram was, which was the land of Canaan. Let me read from Genesis 15, 12 to 16, a similar construction to ours here in our text. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And so God is speaking to Abram of the future of his descendants, telling him that they will go down to Egypt for 400 years and will be oppressed there. And then God says to Abram, but I also will judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. So this is the plagues and then finally the Passover and they come out of Egypt, right? God says he'll judge that nation and come out with many possessions, his people will. And then verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. And then verse 16 says this. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the amorite is not yet complete. So Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees, "Fill up what fill up the cup of wickedness." in Thessalonians it talks about filling up the cup of wickedness and then judgment. And here to Abram, God says Your descendants will be in Egypt until what? Until the cup of the wickedness of the Canaanites. Amorites, Canaanites, you can use it in parallel construction. Then, when they've filled their cup of wrath, their cup of wickedness, then I will bring your descendants back here. And what were the Israelites told to do to the Canaanites? They were told to wipe them out utterly. Women, children, and animals let alone men. And so what Jesus is saying to these Jews is, God is going to wipe you out as he commanded you to wipe out the Canaanites. Now, what kind of reputation did the Canaanites have to Jews? They utterly hated them, despised them. They were a byword for wickedness, decadence, everything evil. It's like saying the word Nero, the Emperor Nero. Everybody has a fit. That's like Hitler. And so Jesus is now turning the condemnation that has always been used for those who do not belong to God, those who are not the Jews, those who are not the true people of God. He's now turning it on the people of God, but not just the people of God. He's turning them on their religious leaders. And he is saying that as your fathers killed and persecuted the prophets and the righteous men, so you are doing it today and your cup is full. You are at the point of your cup being full. In other words, judgment is about to fall on you. That's what's going on here. Verse 33 You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? And so you will go to hell for what you're doing. Now, think about that. God Almighty is standing in front of you and telling you what your actions are. And there is no sin in him. There can always be a reason for rejecting the preaching of a man like me, because you know me, you know my sin. But this was the spotless lamb of God. There was no scandal with Jesus. There was no error. There was no lack of compassion. There was no uh, arrogance. There was no pride. There was no dogmatism. But of course, as I say that, you should be laughing. Can't you just imagine what they said about Jesus when he said this? Do you think they didn't accuse Jesus of being arrogant when he got done saying this? It's laughable. Do you think that they said, now there is true compassion when he got done saying this? Think about this. These religious leaders were so locked into their own cult of themselves and of their holiness and of their piety and of the truthfulness of their religion. They were so locked into it that when a perfect prophet came to them, perfect, they hardened their hearts and they went to hell. They would not listen, right? They wouldn't listen, right? Right? Right. Now, do you think you would? Do you think I would? Do you think I'd listen to Jesus? What are we, anyhow? You and me, what are we? Again, are we the one generation and the one group of people that have escaped the pattern of man? I don't think so. I don't think that all of a sudden this is the one period in history when prophets are loved and righteous men are honored. I don't think so. Is probably this probably is the woe that Jesus gives, the seven or eight woes, depending on how many you count them. That and we'll go again into it next week because he continues on this theme for the rest of the woes. This is probably the one that requires the most careful thought on our part. Because What we have to do is we have to be able to translate into our own time, into our own minds, into our own churches, our own religious leaders, into our own hearts, our own homes, our own marriages. What is going on here between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees? It doesn't do any good for us to see that at the time of Christ, the religious leaders were on a highway to hell and leading everybody that followed him in that same direction and then not take warning today. And the warning can't be about the scribes and Pharisees. It has to be about our pastors. It has to be about our seminary professors, our scribes. And it has to be about us and our elders, right? What good does it do learning what was going on at the time of Jesus if we don't apply it to today? Because after all, what Jesus is faulting them with doing is learning very, very well what was going on at the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and not applying it to their day, right? And so now we're reading Jesus doing it and it would be wrong for us not to apply it to our day, right? And to our own souls, right? Now... We're not stupid. We don't go out and look at the Hollywood stars, right? And we don't buy People Magazine or whatever the latest one is. Vanity Fair, right? And we don't watch Entertainment Tonight or E! or whatever. You know, we don't watch Oprah, right? And Cooper's Town, we all know it's a game not a religion right and so where are our monuments where are they you and me where are they well we honor some of you don't but you know i honor martin luther and john calvin right and the way i set up monuments to them is i quote them in my sermons right And I let you know that if I had been alive at the time of Martin Luther and John Calvin, that I would have never persecuted them. I would have stood in solidarity with them. I would have had courage. I would have been a reformer, right? And you would have too, right? You would never have been the ones that were going back to Rome. You would have been in the Protestant, the protesting churches. You wouldn't have chosen the threats of the sacraments. You know, you wouldn't have chosen to be at the place that claimed that it could save your children. You would have gone with the Protestants who said that it was faith that mattered, right? And so would I. And then when it comes to Jonathan Edwards, we would have been on the good side of the conflict. We would have been the ones that said, that those who are welcome to the Lord's table should have a testimony of the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts personally. And we would never have fired them. Or Edwards, you know? We wouldn't have fired him. Right? Not me. Right? I wouldn't. And then when it comes to Martin Lloyd-Jones, we would have stood against bringing all the liberals and all the Roman Catholics onto the platform of the Billy Graham Crusades in London, right? We would have been with Martin Lloyd-Jones on that. Right? And J. Gresham Machen. You know, we would have been one of the three people that left the large Presbyterian church and and went off into North Dakota and died. Right? It's amazing. It's amazing how good hindsight is, isn't it? You know, we're just so smart. So then here's the question. If we would have gotten every prior period of history right, which is what we all think we would have gotten every prior period of history, right? Then the question is, well, let me ask you this. If you were a scribe and a Pharisee and Jesus said this to you, what's the first question you'd ask yourself? I think the first question you'd ask yourself is, you know, I wonder if there's anybody I'm plotting to kill right now. (laughs) I didn't think about that. I just read to you that they were trying to kill him. They were plotting to kill him. It's all through the Gospels. When this happened, they, these men, were plotting to kill Jesus. Don't you think that a basic thought would be, is there anybody I'm plotting to kill right now? And then the thought would have come, a light bulb would have gone, Jesus! And then they would have thought, "Uh uh-oh, maybe I shouldn't do it. And in less than a week, they'd kill him. Less than one week. From this statement, they kill Now, let me ask you, who do you persecute? Who would you like to kill? Don't tell me no one, because you and I are just like them. You look at me and you say, who would you like to kill, Tim? And I'm not going to tell you, but boy, I have the names at the tip of my tongue. You want me to give you one of them? She's not here this weekend, so I'm safe. Mary Lee. I despise it when she's right. And she puts her finger on my sin and is a helpmate. I despise her. Oh, you should have seen me in the car on the, on the way to our vacation this last time. I was in righteous indignation. It took her about an hour and a half. And then the Holy Spirit caused me to realize that she was absolutely right and I was absolutely wrong. Actually, no. No. I realized it immediately, it took me an hour and a half to have the hammer and the chemicals tenderize my heart hard heart enough to admit it. That was the truth. So what about, your, what about your wife? Do you hate your wife? You bet you hate your wife. What about your parents? What about your parents? Think of those of you here whose parents have, have pleaded with you it with you, and you hate them. Some of you hate loud, some of you hate secretly. One thing I don't have any question about is that you hate the correction of your parents. And it just comes out in different ways. And you men, many of you hate your elders. You hate them. You hate them. You cover it up. Sometimes you act submissive when they correct you. But you hate them. It, 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 uh... It's amazing to me how we can promise to submit to our elders. And then when our elders come to us and say to us something like, say, for instance. Well, no, I better not give any for instances. It's, just, it's absolutely unbelievable. Unbelievable the response of people of this congregation to elders coming to them and saying, beware, watch out, repent. The judgment of God is coming. And waves of people leave this church because the elders have been faithful, have been righteous, have been prophetic. And they go to other churches, and the other churches say, those mean elders, how dare they be prophetic and righteous? And that's exactly what the other churches say. It's exactly what they say. If I were to tell you that John Calvin, when he's commenting on this text, goes on and on about the Roman Catholic Church... And how Rome and the Pope and all the cardinals and bishops and archbishops and priests are just one big orgy of honoring dead prophets and righteous men and killing living ones. You'd all believe me, right? Things were at a fever pitch back then, right? In fact, Calvin even says that they have raised the art of honoring dead men so high that they don't bother with granite and stone. They actually pray to the dead prophets and righteous men. To the saints. That's how sophisticated their cult to dead people is, while they kill living ones. Now, if I were to say that to you, you'd think, well, yeah, that's what Calvin would say, right? But you know what I find very interesting at this church is, If I'm ever critical of the Roman Catholic Church at any particular doctrinal point, if in preaching scripture I apply it to the Roman Catholic Church and say, the Roman Catholic Church is wrong here, if I do that, if I do that, I'm not doing that now, so don't get mad now. But if I were to do that, hypothetically, do you know, constantly you have gotten in my face, and rebuked me for saying anything negative about the Roman Catholic Church. Constantly. I've had people leave the church because I've been critical. And, and honestly, it hasn't been because I've been nasty. I mean, I am nasty. But on that, in my sermons, I haven't been nasty. The point is, today, we can't even look back to the Reformation and face it. We look at the Reformation and we think those men were sinful. I had one of the best known theologians in this country, in the evangelical world, one day tell me that Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the other reformers were in sin for the way that they confronted the Roman Catholic Church because of the words they used, because of how energetic, how bold, how courageous they were. And I think, how can you condemn Martin Luther and John Calvin for standing up against the papacy and not condemn Jesus Christ? How can you do it? I mean, do, do you really think that what Jesus said here was godly? Come on now. And if what Jesus said was godly, do you really think what Jeremiah said was godly? And you go, yes, yes, because Jeremiah was a prophet and God told him what to say. And I say, OK, you've got your easy categories. You know, life is easy for you. What about Jesus? Was Jesus godly when he said these things? Listen to what he said. Snakes and vipers! Is he, is he godly? You go, well, yeah, because Jesus is Jesus. You know, that's a category that's unto itself, and so Jesus is Jesus, right? Okay. Luther and Calvin, were they godly? And you go, well, you know, it was a great wickedness, and it needed men like Luther to deal with it. And do you think today that we are better? Are there any objective indicators, any external marks, any is there anything about the church today that you think is superior to the church of Rome? Anything? Do you think that the moral lives you lead are better than the moral lives of the Roman Catholics at the time of Martin Luther and John Calvin? And so where where are the prophets and righteous men today? You know what the Bible says? The Bible refers to certain times and says in those days what? In those days the word of the Lord was rare. Do you know that part of God's judgment on a wicked people is that he takes away their prophets and righteous men? Do you know what I think when I look at myself compared to Lloyd-Jones, let alone Edwards or Calvin or Luther? I just, I'm just, I'm, repulsed at myself. At my lack of holiness, my lack of prayer, my lack of courage, my lack of knowledge of the word of God. Where are our prophets today? You know what? We don't have them. We don't have them. And when they do come, what do we do to them? We kill them, don't we? I can't help but think of Ray Ortlund. That's what I think happened to my friend Ray Ortlund at two consecutive churches. I could be wrong. I don't know his heart. I don't know the hearts of the churches. How about Edwards? They killed him. He died from smallpox. They killed him. How about Lloyd Jones? I'll never remember listening. I'll never forget listening to one of my heroes say about Lloyd Jones that you know this. It was a very dainty uh, dissing. You know how you can diss in a very dainty way? You know, damning with faint condemnation. And Billy Graham has a monument before he's dead. So that must mean he's a great prophet, right? Rick Warren has monuments out the wazoo and he's still alive, so he's a great prophet, right? 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 Okay, what's the application? Number one, when your wife tells you that you're in sin, hear Jesus saying that you persecute and kill the prophets that are speaking to you now and realize that God has sent her to you. Number two, when your father and mother speak into your life, Open your arms and your heart to them because that's the moment they love you best. Number three, when your elders come to you, what? Don't persecute them. Don't cut them off. Don't badmouth them in the community. Don't tell lies about them. Don't kill them. That's the moment. When they begin to love you, they don't love you when they come after church Sunday morning and say, Hail, hearty fellow well met, how are you? That's just cheap. But when they come and confront you, that's love. If you're a woman and an older woman in this church comes to you and talks to you about modesty, don't hate her. Embrace her. That's the moment she loves you. Now, I could keep going for a long time, but I'm out of time. But you get the idea. You may not actually have a knife or a gun or a guillotine. You might not be killing people. But you might hate them. And you might despise them. And you might harden your heart against them. The final application is this. The final application is this. I want your attention. The final application is this. Make a conscious decision that you will always go in the direction that convicts you of sin. And that that's the place where you know that the Spirit of God is. If you consciously choose to go in a direction where you can avoid conviction of sin, then you're consciously choosing to remove the prophets and the righteous men from your life. You know, it's just so basic. Choose a wife who will confront you. If you don't, you're a coward. And you despise God. Show your love for your parents most precisely when they discipline you. If you don't, you don't love God or know Him. Choose a church that has elders that may, once in your lifetime, just once, come to you and say, naughty, naughty. I mean, really, is that so awful? I mean, don't you think once in your life you may need an elder to elder you? What? What? I'm sorry, but this just gets me. Let's pray.